Art of Time Ensemble presents Dance to the Abyss at Harborfront Center Theatre, February 23rd to the 25th. Step back in time to the 1920s and immerse yourself in the decadent world of the Weimar Republic. Join us for a night of cabaret and jazz-inspired songs as we explore the music that once defined an era on the brink of catastrophe, featuring the work of Jewish composers Erwin Schulhoff, Misha Spolonsky, and musicians Wallace Holiday, Kevin Turcott, Andrew Barashko, Drew Jarek, and more. Tickets on sale now at harborfrontcenter.com. Use promo code CABARET25 to receive 25% off your tickets. Hi. How are you? Thank you for coming. It's very, very, very cold. We did one other event here so far, which we really enjoyed, I have to say. Uh, the, the person I'm here to talk to on for, for my Not That Kind of Rabbi podcast is somebody who I've known forever. We went to the same high school. He was ahead of me by a few years. He started Yuck Yuck's Comedy Cabaret on 519 Church Street in the basement for a dollar to get in every Wednesday night. And I'd just come back from uh, Alberta where I'd been in acting school. They kicked me out. And uh, I was, I went down there because I knew Mark and I knew Joel Axler, who was the co-founder. And I watched the guys do stand-up and I thought, well, I can do that. Uh, So I I think I I ended up going on twice. And then we moved to Yorkville. And then it was six, seven nights a week. I think on on the weekends, there were like three shows a night at one point. <laughs> and we finally went, okay, this is going to kill somebody, us. So we didn't do it anymore. But Mark has uh, done what I don't And for us, young comics, it was like the most wonderful. He brought in the most interesting people. He brought in Uncle Dirty from New York, who was fantastic. He brought in Steve Wright before anybody knew he was funny. We all, Mort Saul, we all just learned watching these people. Bob Saget, you know, so we had these wonderful things. And it was all because Mark, who needed to, had the kind of force of personality to just really make that thing work. So we should all be eternally grateful that he did spawn the comics like Howie Mandel and Jim Carrey and Norm MacDonald and all of these great talents. They all came through Yuck Yucks. So please welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi, Mark Breslin. Thank you, buddy. Thank you so much. Uh, oh, a comfy chair. Somebody said that... Uh, you get older, that's all that matters is a comfy chair. You get, somebody said you should... This could go really badly. I don't care. The comfy chair is good. You should always get a free seat if you go... Ay. Yeah. And then when you get up... Ay which my father used to do, and then one day in my 40s, I, I went, Ay, when I sat down, and I thought, we're on the way. You feel that you're now making old two noises? Yeah, oh, yeah. I yeah, make okay. a lot of old noises now. Once half of which I can't talk about. <laughs> um, I wanted to start with, when you were a kid, when's the first time you thought, or did you, what's with this God thing? And when you did, what did you think God was? Okay, well, I grew up in an unusual home in that 
We were nominally orthodox, but the word God was never spoken. My parents never used the word God in the house, maybe to say God damn, but they never used the word God in the house at all. And yet, we kept kosher. Why do you think they didn't do that? Because I don't believe that my parents were religious, but they were very traditional. Tradition meant an awful lot. Look, tradition is sort of the key word in, in Jewish culture. When they were putting Fiddler on the Roof together, um, I guess it was Bach and Harnick, and uh, the producer said, look, you don't have an opening number here. We, I don't think we can put this on Broadway. And so they went back and they started writing and they wrote Tradition, which turned out to be the emblematic song of that musical. Tradition was that important in my house, but there was no... And, and we went to synagogue from time to time, mostly on high holidays, but nobody really cared about the word God. It was not religious. Did you think about, is there such a thing? Never. Never, eh? Never. Never even occurred to me. Never. It was important to me. And I went to Cheder five days a week for five years. I did that. Right? Which one did you go to? Sher uh, Shemayim. I went to Beth Shalom. A Moroccan kid at Beth Shalom. But wow. Yeah, it worked out. Five days a week, right? Two hours, four to six. That's a lot of, that's a lot of stuff. So... Was there a residue there, or were you one of the people, like many of us, who just went, okay, that was it for the Jewish thing. I'm, I'm going to do my own thing now. Look, I did my bar mitzvah for my parents, and I felt that I, I did it, and I was finished with it. But, you know, that Jewish thing is kind of in your bones. It's in your blood. It isn't about what you believe necessarily or what you do necessarily. It's how you feel. And I've always said that, Although I'm, I'm not a... Rel it's weird that you have me on this podcast because I'm not the most obvious person to pick. Uh, I, I don't go to synagogue. I don't belong to a synagogue. Uh, I don't keep kosher, that's for sure. Uh, I have a German wife. Um, <laughs> well, a little bit of yeah, yeah, material in that. A little bit yeah, of yeah. trepidation in the audience. I have a German wife. Um, I belong to the Bacon of the Month Club. Um, <laughs> By the way, Kentucky, way better than Tennessee, just so you'll know. Um, and so in all these kinds of ways, I, I don't even eat that much deli, frankly. Right. I've been to Israel once, and it was to make a movie. So what makes me Jewish? I'll tell you, Ralph, absolutely every single fiber of my body hmm. and mind. I can never get away from my Jewishness. Now, I express it, I think, mostly in my comedy. Another reason is... I love Jews. I can't get enough of them. <laughs> really. I mean, I don't know the people in this audience necessarily, but I will bet that if I met any of you within 10 minutes, we'd have a nice connection. And I do not feel that way about absolutely everybody in the universe. So there's, there's that too. I mean, I love Jewish melancholy and humor and that weird aggressiveness and... The, the ambition that we have and the tikkun olam and trying to help the world. I love all this stuff. God? I don't know. You know, people ask me if I'm an atheist. And I say no. Uh, I feel that that's a belief system just like any other belief system. It's just a belief system that has no belief system. But what I am is the old-fashioned term of freethinker. I'm a freethinker. I don't know. I don't know, and I don't need to know. So uh, you're going to say, well, a lot of people say, I'm not religious, but I'm really spiritual. 
deeply spiritual. And Ralph, I have to tell you, I am one of the least spiritual people on the planet. <laughs> I don't even know what it means, and I bet if I asked everybody in this audience to define spirituality, each person would have a very different definition. All right, so when I talk about it, um, because it is the largest sort of movement uh, in North America is spiritual but not religious, right? Yes. So but when I talk about it with people, uh, when I'm counseling or doing things like that, I, I try to explain spirituality as a relationship issue. A relationship you have to yourself, to the other, to the greater world, and to a cosmology that's out there. They just try to connect to all those things. That's a spiritual work, right? Meditation can take you there, all kinds of things. Religion is an attempt at a fitness program, right? So you go on a Friday night, you know, if it's not optional to do Friday night, you have to do it every Friday. It's like if I want a six-pack ab, I actually have to go to the gym. Right. So with, with religion, I find that there are uh, disciplines and restraints and, and uh, wanderings and questions that are in every religion. And yet we find ourselves in a place where because we're rational and individual, we don't go there as easily. So the individual says, don't, you're not the boss of me. And the rational says, prove God. And so when you say prove God, the answer is, okay, prove love. Is it in a bottle? Can you hold on to it? It, it doesn't work that way. Some things are, are leaps, and you have to take them. You know, one of the things that when you were talking I was interested in was somebody put out on social media, to be Jewish, you're not white enough to be white, and you're not minority enough to be minority. And it's kind of a liminal space in there. What do you think of that? I like that one. Well, I do like that, but it also begs certain questions, like um, if we're not white, why do we not get cast for under diversity, in, in diversity programs? Oh, when I worked at the CBC, we had a diversity meeting. Uh, this was years ago, like 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And I said, well, I'm a, I'm a Spanish-Moroccan Jew. I, I'm, I'm kind of a minority within a minority. And I was shut down immediately by the woman running the meeting. She was like, no, no, we're not going there. You know, I'm not BIPOC, so it didn't work. So, yeah, we are sort of stuck. So I want to say that although I would love to say all this, you know, interest in diversity is a good thing, every time somebody, uh, get, uh, uh, somebody who's diverse gets a job, at CBC, some Jew doesn't. You think? Oh, yeah, for sure. Look, the CBC particularly, I mean, don't get me started <laughs> on this, but they're particularly awful. Um, because, um, if you'll notice, there are no Jewish characters on uh, CBC sitcoms, except for the one. That's uh, Eugene Levy, right, right on Schitt's Creek. Schitt's Creek. And the only way they put him on is because they want to show a Jew who's lost all his money. Because well, now he's safe. To be fair... Uh, then why do you um, want to be fair? It's just me. Oh, okay. Uh, American television has, uh, like, Seinfeld, George Costanza, Jason Alexander. I mean, you don't talk about Jewish characters as Jewish. You give them other personas. They're Italians or they're Greek. They're ethnic of some kind, but they're not Jewish. And that's a big thing in the United States. I don't think anybody's curb your enthusiasm and doesn't think Larry David is a Jew. And what a Jew. Um, what a fabulous Jew. The best Jew. The best Jew. He is not, he's gold-plated Jew, really. 
So, you know, I was watching uh, Alan Zweig's documentary, uh, When Jews Were Funny. Yes. And you came on at one point, a few points, but you came on at one point, and we were ta- you were talking about how Jewish humor is diminished as a cultural force, and you said it's because we've made it and we're safe. How do you feel today about being made it and safe? I think we've made it, but we're not safe. And I think we're not safe because we've made it. I'll let that sink in while I open my water. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so, I mean, the way you spoke about it there, it was like, the the job is done, we've assimilated, you know, uh, it's gonna be fine. Uh, There's no real, anti-Semitism sort of under a rock. No, I Today, I I don't think people feel that way. I didn't quite mean that even then. Uh, But I think that when Alan made that movie, and I hope people have seen that movie, it's a good movie. Um, But what Alan meant by Jews being funny was very much an ethnic kind of Judaism, not an assimilated Judaism. I live in a very assimilated Jewish world. Um, Nobody in my world has an accent, but accents are funny. I mean, (laughs) all, all Jews are funny. Um, young Jews, not necessarily. They're, they're at the mall. They're at the mall like everybody else. But I remember my grandmother. I didn't know my, grand, my other grandparents, but I remember my grandmother. And she spoke in a very heavy Yiddish accent. And she was funny. She was funny just taking out the garbage. Ju- it was just <laughs> funny. You were funny inside. You had funny bones. So talk to me then about Canadian Jewish comedy. Is there such a thing? No. Unfortunately, hardly at all. You know, it's interesting. When we started Yak Yaks, um, there was a, oh, this would have been mid-70s, there were a lot of Jewish comics out there that helped start it. And you'll remember most of them. Well, there was you. Yeah. It was me. Yeah. There was uh, Steve Schuster. There was Marla Lukowski. Yeah. There was Howard Nemitz. There was Howard Busking. Yeah. There was uh, Steve Brinder. Uh, there was Larry Horowitz, and yeah. it, it's the list goes on, and I would say maybe 65. Lawrence Morgenstern. Thank you, Lawrence yeah. Morgenstern. A lot of people, and I would say at that time there was about 65% were Jewish. And now, I don't know, there's Ian Sirota, and the rest of them are kind of amateurish. There's, there's nobody sort of prominent, that's for sure, there's nobody prominent doing, doing stand-up comedy. So is there, is there some sort of ethnic injection into Canadian humor, or is it just anybody from uh, dominant culture, white Protestant to... Uh, no, almost everybody who's coming to, through my door now is brown. Right. It's the Russell Peters effect. Um, what's happening is that um, all these people from South Asia uh, c- come to the country, they're poor, they work their way up, and they work through their bootstraps, and they educate their kids, and then their kids say, I want to be a comic, which must just kill them, really. Um, <laughs> but uh, because of Russell Peters, they see somebody who they can emulate. Right. And I don't know who Jewish kids see now that they can emulate. Well, you just mapped out a, a, a time a ge- of having a generation of struggled as immigrants, and then this born of that is Jewish humor and Jewish content. And if you're saying, well, in Canada, it's not an issue, Jews have already have arrived, then there's no need for the struggle. You don't need to be funny. I mean, I always thought, for me, being funny was a way of sugarcoating 
my family existence, that I could make people laugh with it because I wasn't popular. For me... It was great. Yeah, for me, uh, the comedy was so that I wouldn't go to the top of a tower with a gun and shoot people. Because you were angry. Because I was really angry. What were you angry about? What do you got? (laughs) (laughs) Look, I I was a short, runty Jewish kid with a big mouth, and surprisingly... People in the non-Jewish area that I lived in did not think that that was the most wonderful thing in the world. Uh, I know that I really can't understand how people could be anti-Semitic and enjoy Hollywood and go for medical treatments. Frankly, they should be protecting us like an endangered species. The other people we should think about, though, are people who are philo-Semitic, pro-Semitic. When you go to Yad Vashem in, uh, in Jerusalem, they have a whole room of righteous Gentiles, of people who helped Jews during the Holocaust, even though they had no reason to. Um, and there are righteous Gentiles out there, and I've met many, and uh, they are wonderful. They care about us. They see it. They get us. It drives me crazy that people might not see our poetry the poetry of our lives, the poetry of our history, and the poetry of our existence. I just don't get it. Don't you think in many ways it is seen? Not to say there aren't all kinds of cultural groups and ethnic groups and religious groups that bring art and love and beauty to things, but I think Jewish contribution, uh, people are well aware of it. (laughs) I don't know if you're thinking they don't, they don't want to have it, but I, I do feel like it's there. I don't think people really think about that. I really don't. Right. I think when someone, some scientist named Bernstein wins the Nobel Prize, I don't think people go that aren't Jewish go, oh, he's a Jew, of course. They don't. Yeah, but when, when Jewish people watching TV, <laughs> the whole night is, eh, he's Jewish. Oh, well, that's... He's Jewish. Listen... I got it wrong yesterday. I thought Adam Driver was Jewish watching a movie. So I looked it up today. He's like, no, he's not Jewish. Just his name's Adam. Well, Ralph, we used to play the Jew game in in my house. I don't know if you ever did this. Here's how the Jew game worked. Um, Every day, um, we would watch TV, and we would watch sitcoms. And at the end of the sitcoms, they would roll the credits. And my parents would sit there calling out as quickly as possible. (laughs) Because that's how you got points. You go, Horowitz! (laughs) Greenberg! And then there'd be some name like Barton. Maybe it's Jewish, maybe it's not. You only got half points for that. And then the other thing we would do is uh, we would get the newspaper delivered and my parents would sit there with the uh, obituaries. And they would sit there uh, seeing how many Jews had died um, relative to the number of Gentiles that have died and whether we were winning or losing. <laughs> but what does winning mean? Did you, there's winning, more of us dying? Yeah, that there's, no, that there's more of us out there. Oh, okay. Yeah. More of them dying. Yeah. Do you see this, these things as us and them? It sounds like you do. Not so much anymore. I, I, this is sort of old stuff that made sense until I... Moved to, when I moved to Forest Hill, everything changed when I was about 16, and you went there. Yeah. So um, I didn't find a lot of Semitism there, a lot of anti-Semitism in Forest <laughs> Hill. Um, not really. And in fact, I really haven't felt much until the last three months, I haven't felt much anti-Semitism in my life since then. 
through all the different things I've done and all the different places I've been, I really didn't find that. I went to a very waspy college, which was Glendon College. Right. Never felt anything like that. I belonged to a very waspy tennis club. Don't feel anything like that whatsoever. Yeah. So, uh, so I, I, only in the last three months has all of this kind of exploded. But otherwise, no, this comes from being a child to being 16. And I was beaten up uh, as a child. I remember, oh, I remember going to Pioneer Village of all places <laughs> with a friend. Because uh, that shows you how bored I was at 13. How- <laughs> Incredibly bored. Uh, I went to Pioneer Village, and to go there, you had to take two buses, and you had to stay in a bus shelter to wait for the next bus at Keel and uh, Keel and Lawrence or something, right? So I'm waiting in there, and uh, the, a guy comes in, and tough guy, goes, Are "You Jewish?" And I said, "Yes." <laughs> and he put his cigarette out on my face. Oh my God! Um, I remember. Um, I used to love chum charts. Chum charts were my thing. I yeah. loved. I loved pop music between the like 1962 and 1970. I knew every single song, and I really, in some ways, should have gone into the music business. But um, I used to go out on Thursdays right after school. You'd walk over to Kresge's along Sinclair Avenue. It was six blocks. I'd get the Chum chart. I was so thrilled, and I would go home and I would have dinner. And one day when I went there, I took the Chum chart out and I was looking at some records. And a guy came up to me, red knocked me on the head, and I went down. Well, Police were called. They never found the guy. So I know about you. Oh, and I was locked in a locker in, uh, in Oakwood Collegiate because I was small enough to put in one. <laughs> but I w- they left, that was on a Friday night. Oh. And if I hadn't been banging on the locker, for, inside the locker for I don't know how long, the custodian never would have come, and I would have been in there all weekend long. Oh my God. They threw the kids out of school, as you can imagine, but not before I peed in my pants. And when they opened the locker, there was a stream that came. <laughs> that was my pee. <laughs> so I've experienced the anti-Semitism, just not lately. You know, I always wanted to... Over the years, I always thought, I I can't spend my whole life looking over my shoulder for proof that there's anti-Semitism. Because there's anti-blackness, there's anti-gayness, there's anti-all kinds of is. Uh, And I just didn't want to do that. And something that has been kind of heartbreaking in the last little while is that it, 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 it feels like it was just underneath and rising up. And it's hard. It's hard to know. I will say, after uh, October 7th, I had a lot of non-Jewish friends who did write me and phone me to see how I was doing. Yes, me too. And I'd never had that before. Me too. No matter what had gone on. I don't know what they wanted from me, but me too. (laughs) Well, I knew they were just being nice. Um, So you go through this at high school... Judaism is not going to be your religion, but it is going to be your identity. It's my identity. It's my culture. Yeah. And you start a comedy club, which is a very Jewish, Jewish thing, thing to, to do. do. Yeah. You know, uh, the, even the ones in the States. Mitzi Shore from right. the Comedy Store, Jewish. Uh, Rick Newman from Catch a Rising Star, right. Jewish. Uh, Bud Friedman from the Improv, Jewish. Yeah. Yeah. It was a thing. Is it, th- is it a thing anymore? Is there any vestige of Jewish stand-up left? Oh, yeah. 
Absolutely, but it's just there's so much stand-up out there that it gets kind of yeah. lost. But there's Sarah Silverman and Seth Rogen is 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 Jewish and uh, and and talks about it. Adam Sandler never ever yeah. misses a never an opportunity to say he's Jewish. Look at this last movie. You're, you're so not coming to my bat mitzvah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, good for him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Howie Mandel, would, does he? Do you get a Jewish? Message from Howie. I get a Jewish message from Howie because I know Howie so well. Right. But I'm not sure that people who go to see his act in Vegas really know that he. Or no, it no. Just never occurs to them. He's he's Jewish, but he's not Jewish. It's this is an Alan Zweig kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's just I always found him to be the one who was sort of. He wasn't going to wear it. No. Right. So you know, for him, but he was like that with all his comedy. It was just. A, a persona, uh, an energy, uh, uh, almost like a clown energy. Let's talk about the hard stuff that's been happening. After October seventh, what have you? What did you go through after that day, personally? Well, I was sick to my stomach. As any, as frankly, you don't have to be Jewish to be sick to your stomach when you see what you see. When you see what's on TV and you realize what's what's happened, you don't even have to be Jewish to be nauseated by that. Felt just awful. Uh, and then, but I ask I ask people I ask my friends this. Um, okay, let's pretend something. It's October eighth, and you're the Prime Minister of Israel. Go. What do you do? What are you going to do? Come on. Come up with an idea. So, what did we end up with? The bad idea or the worst idea? I don't know. Maybe the worst idea. Yeah. Get that feeling. You know, Hamas did, did got what they wanted, yeah. which is to make the world hate Jews again. That's what they wanted. I, I couldn't understand why, why they would... Uh, a people who are so militarily... Uh, it's just such an unfair fight. Why would they put themselves in that position? And then you realize... No, they don't. Hamas doesn't care about the Palestinians. They're just fodder. They're all martyrs, and they're all martyrs for the cause of making Jews despicable again. And Israel fell for the bait because they couldn't help but fall for the bait. It all unfolds like a Greek tragedy. So what, we, what do we do? Don't ask me what to do, Ralph. We could sit here and debate that till you know, 2027. Mm. I don't know. I don't know. I'd rather talk about my family, frankly. Well, I was just thinking of the fact that you have a kid. I do, and he's here, and I don't think he wanted to come in. Such is his commitment to Judaism. <laughs> he's out playing his device. Um, what do you tell him? And how much, how much Jewish life do you want him to have? The Jewish life I have comes from the background that I had. You know, I remember there was a season when every single week I went to a bar mitzvah because I was in Cheder and all my friends were Jewish and this is what you did. But he goes to schools now, but he goes to some private school. He's been in private school and there's a couple of Jewish kids in the school, maybe in his class, maybe. But like me, most of them come from blended families. He doesn't live in that kind of Jewish world. So when we have a Passover Seder, he's very interested in it. Hmm. And I think he identifies with as he puts it, dad's team, as opposed to mom's team. Uh, my wife is Catholic, but completely uh, non-practicing. 
Um, and my wife actually, when we got married, um, said she was willing to convert, but I felt it was hypocritical of me to say convert so that you right. can you know, participate in the rituals I don't participate in. Right. So right. I thought that was hypocritical. I didn't want to make her do that. But my wife is one of those righteous Gentiles. Right. She loves Jews. She dated before She married me. one. She, well, she, <laughs> before me, every guy she dated was Jewish. Some people just get it. So are you, do you want him to be Jewish? He is Jewish. Well, do you Even though technically, be? because he has a Gentile mother, he's not. But he is Jewish. And I see Jewish things about him coming out every once in a while, certain strains of melancholy, uh, you know, a certain wicked sense of humor. Uh, you can see that. You know, Ralph, I think people embrace religion way too young anyway. I think when he's 20, he'll start to figure it out. He'll decide what he wants. Well, it, it, But I don't think he's going to become, um, you know, a Zoroastrian. Well, in Jewish culture or in Jewish tradition, one of the things was... Uh, a person shouldn't uh, ex accept and the covenant until they're about twenty. Really, I didn't know that. Yeah, you're you're, you're not. So what? Uh, uh, one of my podcasts I just did recently with Rabbi Zelda Golden, a guy I did an ordination program with, uh, and he does a thing called Wilderness Torah. But we were talking about out in California, and it's a lovely thing, Earth-based Judaism. But he was talking about um, what it is for him that he has to struggle with with people when they come and they want to get into their Jewishness. And he said, the problem is they, walk, they come to me with a kindergarten God, which I call the, so it's the guy on a throne with a white beard and a naughty and nice list, which is Santa God is what I call it. But he's a, he calls it kindergarten God. And most people, so it's the old joke with the rap, you know, which was told in, in, in Alan's talk. Uh, Rabbi, there's mice in the in in the sanctuary. Don't worry about it. What do you mean? Don't worry about it. They're going to eat the parchment of the Torah. There's mice. Okay, relax. Go put little keepers on their heads. Give them a bar mitzvah. You'll never see them again, <laughs> right? And 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 that was that's what happens to a lot of uh, a lot of people. I think growing up in a religion is the miracle and non-rational mystery is not valued in this culture. Well, you know, Ralph, I've always been hyper-rational. Right. Hyper-rational. Yeah. I, I, I just, I have no superstitions whatsoever. Well, um, is it a superstition or is it a no, I'm talking about what people. No, brain? I'm not even talking about religion here. I literally have no superstitions. Right. I don't, I, you know, I'll walk under a ladder and a black cat is just a black cat. Uh, and you wouldn't believe how many people actually still cling to those sorts of things. And, you know, if I say, gee, it's a nice day, uh, my wife gets upset and says, don't jinx it. You know, right. don't jinx it. And as if, like, I can actually influence the weather, which would be really great if I could. But, um, yeah, I just yeah. don't have any of those th those things. Yeah, I don't, you know, when you said superstition, for me, was a bit of a trigger because it's it's not irrational or rational. It's rational or the non-rational, the things that can't be explained just like that or we haven't figured out yet. And that's an evolving thing for human beings, you know? I mean, the Earth was flat, now it's not, you know? Yes, uh, but that's science. Right, and that's discovery. And there are unknowns and knowns. And if there's 500 million gal uh, billion galaxies in the universe, galaxies, not stars, then there's probably a lot of things we're just going to have to accept 
that we don't know. Okay, fine, Ralph. But you know what? All that time you're spending thinking about these things, yeah. you could just be loving more people. How can you not do both? No, there's not enough time on the. <laughs> there's not enough. We're time. running out of time. Look, I'm 72 <laughs> years old. How many good years do you think I got left? <laughs> no, I can live past that time, but I'll be drooling and. So no, uh, I won't feel well ever. It, now I only don't feel well most of the time. <laughs> there won't be an afterlife though for you. It's just it's over. I, I believe there's no afterlife. The, after, the only afterlife is the stories that live beyond you. Right. The memories. And the people that you influence. Right. Who you loved and who loved you. Yes. I think those, that's a kind of afterlife. But I'm really stretching the point when I say that. But because basically, yeah, it's dust. Dust. Just dust. That's it. No that's soul? It. No. All right. No. Maybe soul music played at my funeral, but no. Well, do you, so our, our old friend, God, God bless his memory, Paul K. Willis, uh, he was a comic. Uh, he was in a duo called La Troupe Grotesque. We loved him. He uh, died early of pancreatic cancer. And um, as he was getting ready for it, he was going through the lineup sheet. He was a very meticulous professional comic, and he taught me about how to get a, a set list together and props and costumes. And, and uh, he was like, all right, you're middling. And I was just, you know, one, two, three, four. I was maybe three or something. And I went, okay, fine. And he said, uh, somebody else was something. And then I said, who's closing? He said, Breslin. Got to have Breslin close. And you actually had the last words for Paul's funeral. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've repressed that because I was so upset. Yeah. Uh, he... he, he uh, so upset. He was, he was really the person who was my real mentor and really actually got me into the business. Really? Yeah. It, it wasn't Don Cullen. Not really. It was really Paul. Oh, I love Paul. I wanted to be Paul. I wanted to be just like him. And even to this day, a lot of my humor comes from his, you know, acrid <laughs> stuff. He once said that so he was, cynical. He was at the choo-choo. Remember the choo-choo stop in Guelph? That was a gig for us for a while. Yeah. I think we booked you there, but I refused to go there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, so Paul went there with, with Michael to do their act, which was an act. And it was so ahead of its time. You know what? Their act was ahead of its, would be ahead of its time now. Oh, yeah. It, it was no, like nothing else. It was dark cabaret, basically. And he said, uh, he comes back and I said, Paul, how was it? And he said, I had the ultimate heckle. And I was like, what happened? He said, we're in the middle of a bit. A guy stands up on a table and screams, look at me, and falls over. <laughs> and the whole thing dies, and everybody's looking at the guy. And that was it for the night. So he said that was the ultimate heckle as far as he was concerned. Don't take half measures when it comes to home security. Alarms and cameras work, but they'll only tell you that your worst nightmare just came true. Safety Screen by Metalex for windows and doors will keep your family safe and sound with real stopping power. They can't be cut, pried, or bashed in, so you can enjoy carefree ventilation in the spring and fall with peace of mind. 
And protect your fixed windows and doors with rock glass, an absolutely unbreakable clear covering. Call 416-638-2539 or visit metalexsecurity.com to book your free consultation. That's M-E-T-A-L-E-X security.com. Remember, prevention is always better than the cure. I have a question for you. Sure. There was an, shall we call it an incident? That happened at Yuck Yucks. Yeah, I would call it more like a riot. Please tell. Okay. So how many people know about this? Just clap. Yeah, okay. So um, there were a number of Jewish-themed shows uh, using local Jewish comics that were booked into other comedy clubs, smaller comedy clubs over the past couple of months. And uh, those comedy clubs got... Uh, phone calls and uh, all kinds of emails threatening the club that they would blow it up or they would pick it, they would do all kinds of things. And in each case, the comedy club backed down and canceled the Jewish show. Uh, My friend Aaron Berg, who is a brilliant comic uh, from here but lives in New York now, said that he was putting together um, a uh, fundraiser that was going to play 27 cities uh, all across North America uh, to raise money for the Israel, uh, for the defense fund, for the IDF. Uh, and would I be interested in uh, having it at Yuck Yucks? And I said, yeah, I would be, especially when I heard that Judy Gold, who's an amazing comic, and uh, um, Rich Voss, who's also an amazing comic, would be on the bill. And, so, and, the, and Aaron, that's three amazing comics on the bill. And that was part of this, because I thought, this is a great show. People should see this show. And the fact that it was helping Israel when, you know, it was not, it's not a popular thing now, and that's why I thought it was necessary to do it. I said, sure, let's do it. And about the week before it was actually going to happen, I started getting those kinds of calls, and my company started getting all kinds of uh, nasty emails and all kinds of stuff, and there were hundreds of them. We've been there before. Uh, This is not the first controversial thing I've ever done. So it got closer and closer to the time, and it became pretty clear we were not going to back down, and so they tried to figure out um, how to shut the show down. The night before the show, which was a Tuesday, um, they came into the club. We don't know who they were. They went up to the toilets and blocked all the toilets with um, rocks and sand and feces. And uh, figuring if you can't use the toilets, then we wouldn't be able to do the show. We called a plumber, and the plumber fixed it. So the the night of this this thing, and it was all sold out, 300 seats, I came to the uh, club about a half an hour early, and I saw 100, 150 angry, picketing people screaming, baby killer, uh, genocidal maniacs uh, at everybody who was, they were just waiting to get in, they were just lined up. And so I said to my wife who was driving me there, I said, let's use the back entrance. So we go into the back entrance, which I figured nobody would know about, but somehow they did. There was a smaller crowd. I got out of the car, and uh, they tried to stop me from getting in. There was a police uh, escort. He got me to the door, and I got in. But not before, you know, they screamed all kinds of anti-Semitic epithets at me. I got in. And uh, then they called. We we hired three off-duty cops. The off-duty cops called in the riot squad, and there were about a, uh, 30 riot police there 
to make sure that the audience got in. And there was a nonstop screaming match until they did. So um, I feel that many of the people who were there I recognized as Antifa types. I don't even believe that they were Palestinian. Um, they were wearing like uh, uh, motorcycle helmets and things. When I got my son and my wife in, just at the last moment, so that the crowd has, had kind of dispersed, they yelled at my son, baby killer. My son is 13. He's not much more than a baby himself. So it was quite an intense thing. And then uh, they went after Humber, my relationship with Humber College. I have my own school that I started there 15 years ago. It's the only one of its kind anywhere in the world. You can actually get a degree in comedy at Humber College, Humber School of Comedy. So they went after them because of my association with them because they figure, you know, these universities, they are so soft and it's so easy to make them bend over. And so they felt that they could go after them. So, and that's kind of what they're doing now. After the uh, event on Wednesday, last Wednesday, uh, or a week ago Wednesday, there have been no, no events at, at Yuccas. Nothing has happened. There have been no protests. We stopped getting things in the, in, in the mail. We stopped getting all kinds of uh, you know, emails and things like that. It's all stopped. They've moved on to somebody else, some other Jewish business person, you know? Well, today, uh, yesterday or last night was Mount Sinai. Yes, I heard. Yes, it's very enlightened to stop people from going to a hospital. Well, it's a very dark thing that's happening right now. Very dark. So, a year from now, yes, what do you think you'll be talking about with me? My retirement. The I don't know. I don't know. I kind of live in the moment, Ralph. You think we'll still? Be, you think you'll still be as heightened about anti-Semitism as you are right now? Oh, um, well, you know, so many things are become the new normal, right? I mean, you know, I have diabetes. I have to. I have to put a thing in my. I have to put a pen in my in my gut every day. And when I first started doing this, I cried. I was so upset. It didn't hurt. But I was upset because it showed I was falling apart, that I was aging, that time was passing. And now, I don't even think about it. It's like, you know, this with, uh, with the needle, and I'm on my phone <laughs> checking my email. It means nothing. So I, I don't know whether that's going to happen with the anti-Semitism we're feeling now. We'll just become the new normal. Or maybe we'll be able to break through it, and there'll be some resolution to this conflict, although there hasn't been really a resolution since 1948, has there? No. Not really. Well, you but, you know, the good news? I never thought I would see peace in Northern Ireland. And yet, yeah. it happened. The Berlin so, Wall. I think a whole bunch of things have to line up. Yeah. You know, and if one of them doesn't line up, if you don't have the right Israeli leader or you don't have the right U.S. president, it, all, it won't happen. But if enough things just line up, then maybe, maybe we can take some baby steps towards some kind of peace. So if somebody asks you, what's it like to be Jewish, what would you tell them? Greatest thing in the world. I, uh, they should envy me. <laughs> I mean it. The greatest thing in the world. What, what kind of group of people that represent 0.02% of the world's population have half the scientific Nobel Prizes? Come on. <laughs> we punch so far above our weight. But is there a danger of exceptionalism? 
We're just uh, better than people. Of course there's a danger in exceptionalism. Yeah. That's why we have an army. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. We're done. No. You got a last word? Yes. What, like I knew? You knew. I didn't. Go ahead. Well, it's this. You want to talk about uh, anti-Semitism, and you want to talk about what's happening today. Um, you know, I was always kind of a bit snotty about what kind of Jew I am. I'm this kind of Jew. I'm a cultural Jew. You know, that's better than that kind of Jew. That kind of Jew is a, is a, is a religious Jew, and the religious religious Jew, oh, well, that's a completely different kind. Oh, no, I don't want to. This has proven that we all have to be together. This has proven that we all have to work together and love one another as Jews, because I'm not sure anybody else is going to. Mark Breslin, everybody.